0: Luke chapter 12, we pick up this morning with verse 22. Luke chapter 12, verse 22, I'll be reading through verse 34. And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life span? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity, Make yourselves money belts, which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we saw last week, Jesus has diagnosed the illness of covetousness. And he is now giving us some direction concerning how we may, by the gospel and by the spirit and by faith, fight against that sin of covetousness. Covetousness is a pervasive sin. We all struggle with it in one form or another, from one time to another, sometimes with great intensity, sometimes almost imperceptibly but we struggle. And it's important for us to remember, even as we focus mostly on material coveting, because that's what Jesus mostly focuses on in this passage, it's also important for us to realize that covetousness is about more than money. Covetousness is about more than having an inordinate desire for material possessions that you don't have or longing for the possessions that your neighbor has, his money, his house. Covetousness can involve wanting your neighbor's husband or wife. It can involve wanting your neighbor's status, his position, his prestige, his power, Covetousness can involve longing to have anything that you do not have and overly desiring anything that is in this world, good or bad. It's a pervasive sin. You don't have to desire something which is evil. You can be covetous towards something that is good. You see, the thing is not the issue. The heart is the issue. Covetousness, then, is a gospel issue. It forces the question upon us do we love God more than we love stuff? Do we treasure the gifts of the gospel more than we treasure the things that our heart is preoccupied with? And it's a heart issue as well as a pervasive issue. The, the Apostle Paul said it was that 10th commandment that forbids coveting that taught him that the law was spiritual said, I wouldn't know coveting was an issue unless the law told me that. What did he mean? Well, when you lie, some people can know that. You're lying to someone, obviously. When you steal, people can know that and see that. When you murder, people can know that. They can see that. But it is possible to covet With no one else in the world being aware that you're doing it, except for you. And that, Paul said, taught him that all sin has its root in the heart. It may be expressed outwardly, but all sin has its root in the desire of the heart. So this is a heart issue. And Jesus, in our passage this morning, gives us ways to fight against that heart issue. And in fact, they are ways that fight against every issue of the heart, every sin that takes root in us. They're very basic. There's no secret about these things. We've got to believe, we've got to get into the Word of God, and we've got to pray doesn't seem very exciting, doesn't seem like there's some kind of new truth here, and there isn't. This is what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is not about novelty, it's not about finding some secret key, it's about being reminded of the spiritual disciplines, coming back to the same things over and over and over again. I'm going to trust God, I am going to immerse myself in his word. I am going to commune with him in prayer. The way that you fight the sin of covetousness is that you believe. You trust him. God wants you to believe certain truths about himself and about his providence and about you that are absolutely necessary for you to believe if you're going to fight covetousness. You have to fight against covetousness by believing in God, by believing what he says in his word, and trusting what you know about him. If you look at your circumstances, and especially circumstances in which you are struggling with some lack, some want, some unfulfilled desire, and you deduct from your circumstances your opinions about God and this world, you will never win the battle against covetousness. You've got to bring everything that you know about God to that battle. Otherwise, what do you have left? You're listening to the world. And the world is going to point you in an entirely wrong direction. In the midst of our circumstances in which we're facing a lack of want, an unfulfilled desire, God says, don't look at the circumstances, look at me. Look at my promise, look at my word, look at that which you know. And that means believing what he has said in his word, and so we take his word and we meditate upon it. We take his word and we bring it into us so that when these situations arise, when these temptations arise, we have a resource. So we meditate and reflect upon what we say we believe in his word because this doesn't just happen overnight. When we are in these kinds of circumstances in which we're feeling some lack or or some desire, An inordinate desire has taken hold of our hearts. We can't get something out of our minds that we don't have but we we want. It requires placing the desire and our circumstances and what God has said in his word side by side and meditating over it until what God has said is bigger than the circumstance and the temptation. That's why we read the Scripture. That's why we study the Scripture. That's why we memorize the Scripture. That's why we come together on the Lord's Day and throughout the week. Because we want to get the Word deep into us. So that it affects us. It changes us. We can take it and we can apply it when these situations arise. But we also need to go in the other direction as well. We need to take in the word. We also need to pray. We need to take our coveting before the Lord and confess our coveting to him. Lord, you already know that I covet, (laughs) but I'm going to say it. I'm going to name how intense it is for me. I'm going to talk about how specific it is. And I'm going to confess my sin to you. It's amazing, isn't it? How when we are struggling with something, particularly in the area of sin, so often we come to the Lord in prayer and we avoid that issue as if we can hide it as if God doesn't already know. What we need to do is to remember the word that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then do that. Because what God says is true. And he desires us to come boldly before the throne of what? The throne of grace. There is no longer a throne of judgment for God's people. There's a throne of grace. And God desires to be gracious to us. And so we come to him and we ask him by his Holy Spirit to not only forgive our coveting, but to break that coveting in us and give us a better, greater desire, a desire for him. So that we see that which we are coveting for what it really is shallow something without substance and then we compare it to what we have in Jesus Christ what we have in God and all the promises that he has made to us and so battling this sin requires believing and meditating and reflecting on the word of God and praying Now, with that, as kind of a backdrop. Let's begin to look at this passage together. Jesus gives us specifics as we do those things in this passage, and I want to look at them with you. First of all, in verses 22 through 30, you see Jesus' arguments against anxiety and against worry. These are things that flow from coveting. We want these things because we think They are going to provide that which we need, and we're looking in the wrong place. Here's what Jesus says. He says to us, fight covetousness with truth and faith. This is what Jesus says in this passage. Notice specifically four arguments that he gives in verses 22 through 30. The first you see in verse 24, consider the ravens. Jesus' point here is that we ought to look at these birds, birds that don't have jobs, birds that don't earn a paycheck, birds that don't have titles and work at businesses, and God provides them with all the food that they need. And his argument is this, if God provides for the birds, he'll provide for you very simple. It's not complicated at all. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom or barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. So he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Not that there is no value to the birds. God created them. They're valuable, but you're more valuable. And if God provides for them, he'll provide for you. Now, that argument depends on a couple of things. If you look at the passage, it depends on your coming to really believe God's providence. Do you really believe that God provides for you? That's why he points you to the birds in the first place. And then it depends on you understanding that you are made in the image of God, and you are, in fact, more important to God than birds. So Jesus essentially puts two doctrines in front of us, and says, if you will understand providence, that God provides for you, and if you will understand that you are far more important to God than the birds, then you will realize that God provides for the birds. Your deduction will be, God will then provide for me as well. Birds, I can remind you, are not created in the image of God. You are. And then he gives a second argument. Look at verses 25 and 26. Which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If, then, you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? In other words, Jesus' second argument is that worry is ineffectual. So why bother? It doesn't work don't worry because you're locked in on this thing that you ha- don't have because it won't help. When we're in circumstances that point us to our human limitations, our finite nature, that we are not what we want to be, we don't have what we do want, and we cannot, by our own strength and effort, rectify the situation. What do we do? Well, our tendency is to worry. We don't have the strength to change the situation, so we'll just worry about it. And Jesus says, that doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't make anything better. It doesn't even make you feel better. It makes you feel worse. Doesn't make the people around you any better. Doesn't change the situation. Instead, when you're in a situation where you lack, uh, where, where your lack and your your weakness, your finitude is made aware to you, the answer is not to worry. What's the answer? The answer is to rest in God's sovereignty. Every experience in life that points to your Finitude points to God's infinitude. You're finite, he's infinite. Who do you think you should depend upon? Every situation in life that points to your weakness points to God's power. Who should we depend upon? We are limited, God is not. Who should we depend upon? He goes on and makes another argument in verses 27 and 28. When he says, consider the lilies of the field. Well, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little Faith. Same argument with the birds, really. Essentially, the same form of argument. If God clothes the grass, and he does so gloriously, he will clothe you. If God will decorate this world with beauty, then he can take care of your clothing, of your shelter, of the things that you need and beyond that, God just didn't make this world functional. God made it beautiful. Even though it's temporary, even though it's going to be burned up, as Peter describes. God still made it beautiful. Even though the fall has occurred and the fall has affected the creation so that the creation groans. There is still amazing beauty in the world. Flowers may shrivel up in the sun, but there is still while they last, an innate beauty. We tend to think of things that we're going to throw away as purely functional. They don't have to be beautiful. They don't have to look good. They just have to do their job, and then we get rid of them, and we get something else. God takes even that which is, in a sense, disposable and makes it beautiful. If God will make such lavish provision and clothe his earth in glory and beauty, even though it is transient, what will he do for you? Do you think that he's not concerned about you? Well, of course he is. Again, this argument depends upon your understanding of who God is. How lavish he is. How generous that he is. The person who is struggling with coveting, here's the sadness of this. The person who is struggling with coveting believes God to be stingy rather than generous. We think that he is, what's the old word people used to use? Parsimonious. He just sort of parcels out blessings in little pieces. When the reality is that God is opulent and lavish and generous. And Jesus is asking here, do you believe that God would make lavish provision for grass, but he won't do it for you? Another argument he makes, look at verse 29 and 30. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom. I'm sorry, let me start with verse 29. Do not seek... What you will eat and what you will drink, do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. Now, all of us have heard horror stories about bad fathers. Jesus is talking about a good father. Do you know of a good father who doesn't care whether his children eat? Do you know of a good father who doesn't care whether his children are clothed? Do you know of a good father who doesn't care whether his children have a place to lay their head at night? Your father knows that you need these things. He knows everything. He knows you, and he knows what you need. He knows the desires of your heart. And so he wants you to come to his word and to understand his fatherhood. It's one of the things that we're to meditate upon in this context. God is not out there, some harsh judge sitting on his throne. He is our father. If we are in Christ, he has adopted us as his children. This is who he is. He knows you. He knows the desires of your heart. Jesus piles up arguments and reasons and doctrine. And he says, you've got to believe these things. You've got to keep reminding yourself of these things. You've got to have faith in me, and I'm telling you these things are true. You've got to believe them. You've got to live accordingly. He's telling you to fight your covetousness with the truth of God. With faith in what God has promised. Fight your covetousness as you live in communion with God. As you fellowship with him, day by day, getting to know him as your father. In verses 31 and 32, there's another truth that comes out to us. And that is that we, when we covet, we settle for too little. When we covet, we settle for too little. Seek first, well, seek his kingdom. keep getting these passages mixed up because they're parallel passages. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom That is really extraordinary. See what Jesus is saying. He's saying when you're coveting what you don't have, here's your problem. Your problem is you don't want enough. You can have God's kingdom and you're settling for something far smaller. You don't want Enough. What you've set your heart on is too little. Because even if you've got what your heart is set on, when it's not set on God and it's not set on the kingdom, you're settling. Here's why C.S. Lewis said Our problem is not that we want too much, it's that we're satisfied with too little. Our sights are set too low. Our desires are set below that which God has prepared for us. He says, Seek the kingdom. Because what does the Father want to give to you? He wants to give you the kingdom. You want a Lexus? He wants to give you a kingdom. You want a bigger house? He wants to give you the kingdom. If you want a better-looking husband, he wants to give you the kingdom. So Jesus is saying, make sure you want what God wants for you, and not something less. You're not asking for enough. You're not wanting enough. You don't want something that is really going to satisfy you until you want the kingdom. And then he adds to this word. Look at the end of verse 31. He adds this promise. How do you fight covetousness? You fight it by believing the truth that Jesus taught us in verses twenty-two through thirty. You fight it by making sure that your desire is set on the kingdom rather than on stuff that will not satisfy. And then you believe you, you, you fight covetousness by believing the promise. And what's the promise? All these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. What's Jesus saying? He's making a promise to those who will seek the kingdom. He's saying he will supply all your needs. God will supply all your needs. What does Paul say in Philippians 4.19? My God will supply all your needs according to his riches. In glory in Christ Jesus. What does Paul say in Romans 8:32? He who did not spare his Son, but delivered him for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? There's the promise. Where'd Paul get that from? (laughs) He got it from what Jesus had taught already. Believe the promise. And then, this is really extraordinary, look at verses 33 and 34. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Remember, everything we're seeing here is in the larger context of discipleship. Jesus has been talking about discipleship for many chapters now. And we're still on that general subject. If we are going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then we are not going to pursue those things that the world tells us we deserve. We're not going to pursue those things that the world Desires us to want, rather, we're going to pursue a different kind of treasure entirely. The last thing we need to do to defeat coveting is to let go of what we already have, to be generous, to be open handed. If we are overly preoccupied with what we don't have, Jesus says, here's how you defeat that. You believe what God has said in his word. You make sure that what you really want is the kingdom. You believe God's promise. And then, if you're struggling with trying to find joy in what you don't have, start giving away what you already have. And in doing this, what happens? then your life is no longer about stuff. It's no longer about stuff. And you begin to realize, you know what? All these things that I think are so important, not so important after all. (laughs) When you move, this is what Fred and I have found time and time again before coming to Red Mills, we haven't moved in quite a long time now, but early on in our marriage we would move all the time. And every time we moved, it was then that we realized how much stuff we had accumulated. Every now and then, go down into the basement. Things are getting cluttered and just junk everywhere, I have to rearrange things. It's like why do we still have this? <laughs> it's been sitting here for thirty years and just you've never even looked at it. Some of the stuff you forget you have. And we could get rid of it and it would make absolutely no difference to our life, day to day to day." When we start giving away the abundance, because that's what it is, God has promised to meet our needs, and he will meet our needs. And he does so, as we said before, generously and lavishly, so that, Paul says, We have something to give away. And when we do that, then what happens? We're reminded that God has provided for for us generously because he's given us enough to give away. I can be generous. I can be open-handed. And it's not going to change my life too much. God's still going to provide for me what I need. And it also reminds us that the stuff we're giving away is not where we get our joy. It's not the source from which contentedness and peace and happiness comes. and You end up realizing what a blessing it is to be able to help someone and be the conduit. Of God providing for them. Every now and then you hear stories about how God provides for people. And sometimes it's quite miraculous. And it's it's amazing. And we praise God for that. Somebody needs a couple of hundred dollars. They go to the mailbox. They haven't told anybody anything. And somehow there's a gift for $200 there in their mailbox. Praise God. It's not usually the way he does it. He usually does it through normal means. He does it through giving us jobs. He does it through giving us the body of Christ to help and to provide for. All these things are... When you look at everything Jesus says here, And you strive to put them into practice. And you compare what our lives are now. And I am absolutely including myself in this. We compare our lives now with that life which Jesus is describing. It can be a little disconcerting. Because... They may be very different. But what Jesus wants to do is to work the gospel deep into our hearts in these things, because coveting is a gospel issue. Here's what it comes down to, brothers and sisters. What do we desire more? Stuff or God? This is exactly the struggle that Eve faced with Satan in the garden. What do I want more, God or this piece of fruit and everything that this serpent said would come with it? And she chose the fruit, and so did Adam. And that's what's happening every time we covet. We're choosing the fruit rather than God. So what can avail for us in this battle? The gospel. Only the gospel. What do we care about most in this world? Is it the kingdom? Is that what we're seeking? Is it God himself? Is it The souls of others who by our word and life might be delivered from that covetousness which is holding them in bondage? Do you long to see the gospel advanced in your heart and in your life? Do you long to see the kingdom of God advance? Do you long to see God's glory displayed in this world? I try to imagine how God's glory can be displayed among a people who are primarily concerned with this world, and I can't see it. God's glory is manifest in a people who love him above all else. And live in a way that is different from the world because we have been changed. If we care more about things than God, the only thing that can help us is the gospel. The gospel that calls us to recognize our sin and to repent of our sin. And to give it over to Jesus. That's the answer for coveting. Everything else that we've seen in this passage flows from that. Who will be first in our lives? Will it be ourselves? Because we want to satisfy all those wants and desires and lusts? Or will it be God? Father, we want it to be you. It is hard We live in a world, Father, that is just full of stuff. And we are bombarded constantly by voices telling us that we deserve the stuff. That we ought to have it. That we can have it. That it's a good thing to have it. And yet, Father, your word tells us something entirely different. That you will provide what we need. And when you provide us more than we need, we are to treat it, Father, open-handedly. This doesn't come naturally to us. We need your spirit to work within us, Father. So convict us, Father, of those things that need to be changed and change them in us. This we ask for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the kingdom. May you and your kingdom, Father, be of utmost importance to us. May that be what we treasure. May that be what we pursue. For your glory, Father. Amen.